So Sibylla and I are here again today with some very exciting stuff that we're kind of honing in on some big mm-hmm. ideas um, related to the one and the multiplicity and um, related to the personal and identity and and uh, all of these kind of things. It's um, We have kind of both been coming at this from two different directions recently, and we thought we'd jam it together and see what we go with. So, so uh, Svilla, I'm going to ask you to get started and okay. tell us where you want to head. So last time we talked, you know, I was trying to figure out, I mean, basically, because I'm, I'm, I'm not a Christian in the sense that you are, and that Paul Vanderclay and Jonathan is, I'm, I'm hovering somewhere around Verveke and, and you guys, you know, so it's, it's been, it's been kind of um, a difficult thing for me to try to have a sense of who God is let's just say you know and I'm, I'm I know this is a struggle of many people for a long time and <laughs> and all that so this is so so it's sort of my journey and um and last time I was you know I, I really like like Verveke like John Verveke I'm I'm attracted to how God is articulated in Neoplatonism, even though I don't know, you know, I'm, 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 I still know very little about Neoplatonism, but you know, learning more all the time, and, um, and of course, I have Persig's view of God, and, um, and, and what I was saying in the last uh, conversation we had a couple months ago is that I thought that Jonathan. Pajot's definition of God was something I could relate to in a lot of ways, um, just in terms of the ineffability of it. The personal part, I'm having a little bit of a harder time with, and that probably has to do with my, you know, um, what was my secular nature and uh, just, you know, upper middle class liberal education and all that and being, you know, uh, going to college in the 80s and and just uh, being atheistic when I was younger, all that stuff, right? So now I'm trying to to envision it in a way since I didn't really inherit a tradition um, or I didn't join a, a, a tradition. So, so I thought that Peugeot's description of it, aside from the personal part, really I related to, I thought it was like Plotinus and I think it's like Persic. So I think the struggle I'm having is is jumping up to the personal, as, as Jonathan would say. So that's a, sort of the nature of the discussion. And then of course, what was prompted all wanting to re, you know, to do this conversation is when Paul Vanderclay gave us, you know, the critique where um, I'm trying to envision it. I use the word force, trying to envision God as a force. And you said that if it's a force then you can actually rein it in and get a handle on it. And that that's below God, if it's a force, you know, it's something that's even below us that we can, it's a physical thing that we can get a grip of. And, and that's what Paul's critique was. So I think what I'd like to do is um, start with, with um, Peugeot, Peugeot's little, the, the clips that, that we agreed on. Um, and then maybe should should we just do it all at once and then discuss it or should we do the clips and then discuss it what do you think 
or do uh, the clips and the readings and then discuss it. Because what I've got is the two clips that I sent you. Uh huh. Um, I have um, that, which is showing there, which is from the Stanford Encyclopedia of right. Philosophy about Plotinus. And that figures into how Jonathan Pajot described what God is with the with his guest, that one, that clip. Maybe we want to start with that. Can you see the clip now? I can. Yeah. Okay. So we'll start here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then we'll look at the yeah. the paragraph on Plato. Understand yeah. it is that God is a is a is a communion well, of. Can persons. we, um, right. Karen? Can we start a little earlier with the guy actually asking him because oh, the question? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's he sounds like me. This guy. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> is uh god is would god kind of be like um uh, an abstract uh set of values or would god be a person so it's okay so the way that christians understand it is that god is a is a is a communion of persons right okay right? Right. so that's what the idea of the trinity is Right. And so the idea, so the best way to understand is that God is the infinite source of everything. Right. That's the first thing to understand is that's what God is. And the, the second thing to understand is that anything you say about God is always wrong. Like everything you say about God is always a compromise. Okay. And this is something that's just completely orthodox. Like this is not, it's not some new age stuff. It's, this is really what the church fathers taught is that <clears throat> God's, God's being or God's essence or God's beyond being is not actually a being is beyond being is something that you can't talk about. Okay? okay. But nonetheless is the source of everything, right? The infinite source of everything, which is beyond everything. And so, and it manifests, it, it reveals itself to us as a communion of persons, as this, this communion of love between beings. And they're not beings in the, like I always say, like, if you think that when I say use the word being, it's, it's like the same thing as your car or as a, as a as a as an apple. Then then stop. Then God doesn't exist. Then I just I, I'm totally fine in saying God doesn't exist. If for you existing just means the things you can see and touch and quantify, right? Sure, but if, sure. But, but but let's say God is beyond that level, um, and so that is how God reveals itself though, as a communion of love, and and you could say that in Christianity the infinite itself, right, and the expression of the infinite. And the manner in which the, the infinite expresses itself in the world is all part of, of God, you know? And so that's what God is, let's say, to you, because, and knowing that even that is, is a, is a compromise in language. Um, and so, so you can imagine that all of reality leads up to a point where it stops. So think about, think about any identity, right? And so it's like an apple, right? I can describe all the elements of the apple, but I, I, no matter how many elements I describe, at some point I, I, I have to stop and jump up and say, apple, right? I have to jump up. The, I have to emerge out of this quantity, out of this multiplicity and jump right. up into a, a single identity, okay? And so that's, it's like that for every being. Every being has that reality, which is that its identity is above its multiplicity, right? It's, it's higher than its multiplicity. So now do that for everything. So that everything, so people like to say things like, I pray to the universe, right? And it's like, there's something dishonest about that. 
Because what, how do you even, how can you say that the universe is one? Like, what is this unity of the universe? Like, what are you talking about? And so that's why even that has to jump up into something which is beyond, to something which is completely beyond all ways of naming, of manifesting, anything that you can think of or, or quantify. And that, and that is what, that is what the divine is. That is the, the, the infinite source of everything, right? The ground of being, you could say. There are different ways of, of, of trying to, to talk about this. Um, and then, it, and then for, for Christians, especially, it, it manifests itself as a communion of love. And then that communion of love helps you understand how things exist in the world. So it's like the fact that you can see that something is one. And you could say, you could go as simple, even an apple, you could say something like, the apple exists through a communion of love. And you'd say, oh, that's a stupid thing to say, but think about it. It's like the elements that make me recognize that something has being, they're all multiple. They're, they're, there's an indefinite amount of them, right? A chair is even better. Like there are all these elements of the chair and then somehow they come together and they join a single purpose and then they exist as one. And that's what love is because it doesn't also destroy the multiplicity, right? It doesn't, doesn't stop the chair from being multiple things at the same time. It's still legs and a, and a back and it's all those things are still there, but somehow they're able to kind of come together and become one. And that's, that's what, that's how the world exists. Like that's how everything exists basically. So, so when he's talking about that at the end there, the communion of love, he goes mm -hmm. on later on in that video to talk about the communion of love being mm -hmm. the father and son and Holy Spirit who have had this relational love going on since before time began. And so that's the communion of love. And, and um, that's why he says that that is beyond being, beyond what we think of as entities right? That all entityness comes out of that communion of love. That the communion of love is um, eternal and infinite and has always been. Yes. And that the only way that we can understand the communion of love is through a personal God, through God as persons. Yes. Well, and, and I think that in, in that video, in the center part of that video where Paul is talking about this, he goes back into some C.S. Lewis and he's mm -hmm. the problem is if you only imagine an abstract entity, if you think that thinking about thinking about this communion of love as being three persons, if you think that's weird, then all you have to do is think about the weirdness of thinking of this as an abstract entity, because when you do that, the, the analogy, the pictures you get in your mind are all weird pictures. Like you're either seeing this as an amorphous gas that sort of spread throughout the universe or mm -hmm. as some kind of substance similar to tapioca pudding, I think. So that's why I think God knows us and knows that we're not good at grasping infinity and so mm -hmm. in order to relate with us he gives us a, a picture an analogy that we mm -hmm. can relate to which is why i think i'm perfectly fine with the platonic vision and plotinus vision mm -hmm. what they are is a uh, an attempt to understand and then when christ comes he gives us the fullness of this mm -hmm. 
image. He is the image of God. And so he gives us the fullness of this image that we can then relate to on a personal level. So, so, so Plato, then Plotinus, and then uh, I guess it would be Aquinas. Is that right? Well, that yeah, Aquinas sequence? is what, 13th century or something like that? Oh, okay. So, all right. Sorry. So let's, let's say um, that, that the, the Christian view of God emerges from like like the neoplatonic or the platonist idea of god is not fully formed and christianity allows it to form well i think neoplatonism comes neoplatonism comes after christ i think Yeah. yeah so so I am not a philosopher at all. Okay. Yeah. So lots of caveats here, but my understanding is that that some of the early church fathers found Plato's language helpful mm-hmm. in explaining some of the philosophical undercurrents involved in Christ's life and right. death and resurrection. And so they incorporated some platonic language when they were described you know when that when the church fathers were teaching about these things so Uh, so because here's the thing i think from the beginning of history god has been in the process of revealing himself you know it says in the in the first chapter of romans that basically we are without excuse if we say i had no way to know there was god he says Mm -hmm. i reveal myself all the time right right? I'm, the, the heavens declare my glory. All you have to do is look up and you can see that there is more. So that would mean that God would reveal himself in different ways. And this is how he revealed himself to Plotinus. Was that fair to say? Well, or- this is, let's say God's revelation is there. Yeah. Each of us has only an imperfect way of understanding that revelation so so even the trinity is imperfect but it it's the best like like um like what paul says in the clip we're going to play right um i'm not sure you want to go back to the beginning um well let's uh well let me let me read this um read the thing from yeah let's read that first uh, just as a clarification i would not say that the trinity is imperfect uh-huh. okay, okay. I, I just want to clarify that all right, all right. Um, i i think that um so so for man the the trinity is perfect oh boy you're, you're asking i'm not sure that's the right question yeah. um you're talking about perfect in the sense of perfectly describing who god is i don't think that human words can perfectly describe anything but god's revelation is perfect any understanding that we have of that revelation is going to be imperfect but for two thousand years people have been grappling with trying Mm -hmm. to find a way to as a as a body of people understand and and worship the understanding that we have of God's revelation to us. 
Let me say that. Okay. And okay. That, now you're going to read this paragraph. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Emanation multiplicity. And, and Prejo was talking about um, multiplicity leads up to a point and it jumps up and then that's the identity. You know, there's the multiplicity so, and at a point it stops and where it stops, it emerges. It, it you know, is this. Uh, I don't think that's the page I want. Hold on a yeah. second. I want to go from here. Um, can you see Plotinus? Yeah, yeah okay. I can. And now we have this paragraph, emanation and multiplicity. I'm going to try to zoom us in a little bit. Yeah. There we go. Okay. So you're going so, to read that to us? Yeah. So the one, you know, then that's Plotinus God is, uh, is the highest, you know, the, the way that Peugeot describes it, I think, is the way that Plotinus, from what I can tell, describes it in some kind of way, except for the personal part. The one cannot, strictly speaking, be referred to as a source or a cause, since these terms imply movement or activity. And the one being totally self-sufficient. Well, well, um, Peugeot says a source, but... Yeah, Peugeot does say the source. Yeah, but I think, you know, again, all this stuff is going to be the difficulty of language and the difficulty of describing something indescribable. So um, has no need of acting in a creative capacity, yet Plotinus still maintains that the one somehow emanates or radiates existence. This is accomplished because the one effortlessly overflows and its excess begets another than itself. This other is the intelligence, noose, the source of the realm of multiplicity of being. However, the question immediately arises as to why the one, being so perfect and self-sufficient, should have any need or any ability to emanate or generate anything other than itself. In attempting to answer this question, Plotinus finds it necessary to appeal not to reason, but to the non-discursive intuitive faculty of the soul. This he does by calling for a sort of prayer, an inv invocation of the deity that will permit the soul to lift itself up to the um, unmediated, direct, and innate contemplation of that which exceeds it. When the soul is thus prepared for the um, accept acceptance of the revelation of the one, or in very simple truth manifests itself, that what from our vantage point may appear as an act of emanation on the part of the one is really the effect, the necessary life-giving supplement of the disinterested self-sufficiency that both belongs to and is the one. In turning toward itself, the one sees. It is the seeing that constitutes the intelligence. Therefore, since the one accomplishes the generation or emanation of multiplicity or being by simply persisting in a state of eternal self-presence and impassivity, it cannot be properly called the first principle, since it is at once beyond number and that which makes all number possible, uh, all my number um, makes possible all number or order. So see, I think the one thing he's missing here mm -hmm. is that 
to say that the one has no need of acting in a creative capacity, I completely agree with because of the communion of love that has existed mm-hmm. from all eternity. There is no need of anything outside that communion of love. It's right. a perfect communion of love. But because that perfect communion of love and in line four, he says, this is accomplished because the one effortlessly overflows. Yeah. I think that's the nature of love is that when, when there is this communion of love, the love effortlessly overflows and the excess begets an other than itself. So it's not out of need, but out of love. And and so, so I think he's onto something here, but he, hasn't got that love piece in here right um but then down below he says uh, when the soul is thus prepared for the acceptance of the revelation of the one a very simple truth manifests itself that what from our vantage point may appear as an act of emanation on the part of the one is really the effect the necessary life-giving supplement of the disinterested self-sufficiency that both belongs to and is the one. I don't like that word disinterested. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I just, I think that's a, maybe a category error of some kind. But then he says, in turning toward itself, and then I don't like itself, okay? Mm-hmm. In turning toward itself, the one sees. It is this yeah. seeing that constitutes the intelligence. Now I don't know if you have if you if you have to use the word intelligence, um, deuce is a better word really, but there is something there about seeing, because I think it was Matthew Allison who has such a brilliant mind, and sometimes he says things I don't even know if he knows what he said, but <laughs> he said seeing gathers. Yeah, and that makes sense, right? And gather and gathering implies love. Well, yes, but but I mean, this goes back to the very fundamental of all the things we've been talking about in this corner, where it is attention that makes um, attention and love and all these things are lined up in this space where attention and focus are what actually allow us to see multiplicity as one. Mm-hmm. It's it's looking at a chair. It's our focus on the chair. I think uh, Verbeke uses the term. Verbeke is using uh, J J J Gibson's idea of attentional focus making something one out of the many um and then who's is he the same one that talks about like uh i can't remember the terminology anymore but it has to do with this graspability of the cup and the relation that the cup. oh yeah i I forgot what there's there's a term that they use there and and that all has to do with this idea of seeing right so it is seeing that makes something come together now I don't know if it's too soon for me to jump into this stuff from Michael Levin, but uh-huh. if that's okay with you. Um, well, well, let me just, um, just, um, I mean, that's very, that's a really interesting point is that the attention is what um, 
like there's love inherent in the attention. Well, humanly speaking, we yeah. can use attention in very malevolent ways, but but um, if we are if our attention is coming from a loving source, then yes. But, you know, a human person can give a malevolent kind of attention mm -hmm. to have a very negative effect on things as well. And that's when Peugeot says that you are not, in, you know, you're not, in, you're not embedded in the highest. You're not embedded in looking up towards the highest as you, as you attend. Right. Because symbol is synthesizing, bringing together, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And diabol, like diabolic, is tearing apart. Mm -hmm. So when you have a malevolent kind of focus or attention, then you're tearing apart. But when mm -hmm. you have a loving focus, you're bringing together. Right. So, oh, so, yes. Yeah. That makes sense. Right? Yeah. So, that's really so, good. Yeah. So the, yeah. the seeing of the one that is all love is bringing together. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I had a thought the other day, and, and I, mm -hmm. I didn't have a chance to look this up, so I should look up the etymology of metabolic. But, you know, meta means like this one level up. And so I'm wondering if somehow symbol brings things together, di diabolic tears things apart, but mm -hmm. metabolic is this act of... Um, like Jonathan talks about when you eat the apple, or maybe mm -hmm. it's not Jonathan, maybe it's JP Marceau, talks about how when you eat the apple, you are internalizing the apple. It's yeah. it's becoming part of you, just like- that's, um, um, I think that's Matthew who says that. Yeah, well, yeah. maybe JP Marceau was talking about Matthew, because mm -hmm. Matthew is talking about eating the meat expresses material mm -hmm. reality, yeah, yeah. Um, the the informing comes from above and then the expressing comes from mm -hmm. but so then the met metabolism would be that uniting of the the emanation and the emergence mm -hmm. yeah so that's just a thought i had but i don't know if i'm on the right track with that, no, that sounds metabolism right. or not yeah um or the act of expressing yeah. So then I mean, there the was metabolism some other... was the active aspect of it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, metabolism would be the the um, the integrating of the taking the symbol into ourselves, integrating it, and then expressing mm -hmm. it in material reality. Like uh, a tree becomes more substantial as it incorporates the carbon from the air into mm -hmm. its into its being and so yeah. continually is becoming more and more substantial and that that's a pro some sort of a process mm -hmm. of metabolism right so anyway that was just a random thought but i no, didn't no, really interrupt you you were on a roll here with plotinus and then you wanted to say something about neoplatonism or did you know i think that no i think that, no, I think that that's 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 all i wanted to say it's just you know like seeing seeing the act of love itself you know 
loving is what is what creates this unity like because Peugeot was saying you know you can't just say the universe is one what does that mean it's this act of creation of the unity through this act of love it's a, it's a dynamic process ever you know ever occurring dynamic process so i guess that when plotinus says something like on the one hand i think i understand what he means by that um you can't you can't say that it's a cause because that would imply movement or activity and i think that means before the movement activity is 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 god but god let's just say overflows or chooses to release that movement and activity and that's the creative force that's a yeah. manifestation in physical reality of god who does not exist in physical reality well i mean from the, or at least okay. I, I think from the christian perspective um jesus christ is ultimate reality so mm -hmm. when you say physical reality that could mean several things for us part of that would be the reality of the the world of physics yeah. right the reality right. of the world of physics is the mm -hmm. reality of of particles and and disintegration more or less to yes. see everything as pieces but um then there would be what Wolfgang Smith calls the corporeal reality, which is yes. the macro reality of the stuff that you and I see, mm -hmm. right? So, so we could talk about different levels of what we think of as reality. I, I think. think that's what I mean. I think that yeah. when you're talking about um, the one in the Plotinus, in, in Plotinus sense and in Pajot's sense, I think this is where they have it in common. It's not something you can even talk about because its existence isn't, in an, an arena that we can comprehend right Be before that, that we have to own the because space way. and time are created entities yeah. right and that's right and that and that um that the one can't be even spoken of it can only be understood in an analogy and yeah. um in plotinus that analogy would be um that it is received let's just say um that the intelligence that we have that we possess in in our corporeal being the noose ties us to the ineffable yes makes it is is makes the, it possible makes it possible for us to have makes it possible to receive the signal let's just say yeah and which, and which that, would go back to esther meek's um what she calls covenantal knowing that um that that all knowing mm -hmm. is um a function of our being able to sense um with the noose be able to sense something and bring it into our mind and then you know ian mcgillchrist talks about the the right hemisphere is mm -hmm. the hemisphere that has access to the outside world bringing in what it chooses to be fascinated with. And then 
offering that to the left hemisphere, which then um, can atomize and take apart and look at and kind of figure things out. Kind of the way, like when I was a kid, our conversations in our household were always dumps idea, some idea out on the table and rip it all to pieces and mm-hmm. maybe put it back together again at the end or something. You know? <laughs> I think we were a very left brain household. Uh-huh. But, um, and I sometimes miss those conversations. But I mean, these conversations are kind of like that, only not not fueled by all my relatives' drunkenness and anger. And <laughs> so, um, so anyway, uh, yeah. So I, I think there is that. But um, now I forgot where I was headed with that. Sure. <laughs> well, well, let me um, let let me just. Why don't why don't we move into the Michael Levin observations? Okay, so um, he's been having this conversation with uh, yeah, he's been having this conversation with Douglas Brash and Chris Fields, and uh, you can see the screen now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Chris Fields is a a physicist and a sort of autodidact. He's taught himself about a lot of different fields of, of uh, knowledge. Mm-hmm. And Douglas Brash is a bioengineering professor, I believe at Yale or mm-hmm. Harvard, who is working on uh, lots and lots of cancer research, particularly to mm-hmm. do with the effect of sunlight on skin mm-hmm. and um, how they might prevent skin cancers in the future. Mm-hmm. And Michael Levin has been on my show a few times, but I've yeah. been talking about him for years because he's working on um, finding a way to regenerate limbs. But what wow, makes that's him, fantastic. Yeah. What makes him most interesting to me is that mm-hmm. he is willing to ask questions that hardly anybody else in the science world is willing to ask. And actually, before I show this, I want to show just this very brief clip here mm-hmm. of Joana Xavier. You can see this? Mm-hmm. Okay, Joana Xavier is um, a rising star in the origin of life field. She recently authored a paper with Stuart Kaufman on autocatalytic networks, which are nature's version of M.C. Escher's hand drawing a hand. Mm-hmm. In this, they're having a conversation in here on the uneasy relationship between science and intelligent design. Mm-hmm. She says this, which I think is really fascinating. So one of the ways that I try to think of this to bridge these two views is that design is a lens, not an event. And it's also a capability of cells. So cells redesign themselves, which is another hand drawing a hand thing, right? The DNA builds the cell, but the cell modifies the DNA and it changes the next generation. I mean, this is, all of it is mind blowing stuff. If you attempt to wrap your head around it, it's just, wow. It is. But about intelligent design, let me tell you, Perry, um, I read uh, Signature in the Cell by Stephen Meyer. Is that mm-hmm. his name? Yes. yes. 
Yes. And I must tell you, I found it one of the best books I've read in terms of really pointing, putting the finger on the questions. Yes. What I didn't like was the final answer, of course, but I actually tell everyone I can, listen, read that book. Let's not put intelligent design in a spike and burn it. Let's understand what they're saying and engage. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a really good book that really exposes a lot of the questions that people try to sweep under the carpet. It just answers it like with this, it's not, yeah, I, I think we must have a more naturalistic answer to these processes. There must be. And Otherwise, I'll be out of a job. <laughs> you got that right. Mm-hmm. We need a more naturalistic answer. Otherwise, I'll be out of a job. Okay, so cool. I think that's a very good response from her. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we just have the answer, oh, well, it's God, then all these guys will quit working on these problems. But because they don't have an answer, they keep striving for, you know, cancer Mm -hmm. research and, and trying to understand how the world is put together and regenerate Mm -hmm. limbs and all of that. That um, just for a second, I'm going to stop sharing because I can't stand just looking at the screen. you. So this, what we have then is we have these questions and when I, the very first time I had a conversation with Paul, like five years ago, Mm -hmm. I put forth this concept that I had of the world that all these different levels of knowledge and these different domains of knowledge are all connected together somehow through beauty, but that each one of them is basically infinite in scope. There's there's an infinite amount of information and knowledge and wisdom that's available and that scientists are just sort of walking out into this field of infinite information and knowledge and wisdom. And because each scientist is unique, they grab some little piece of it and then they start working on it. And then there's lots and lots and lots of stuff out there that they can find to use to answer their questions. Well, that's Esther Meek's covenantal knowledge. It's all there as a gift. You're out there looking through this landscape and there are all these gifts. And if you keep looking, you're going to keep finding these gifts. So in my mind, if, if the scientists would have this um, perspective of where are the gifts stored? These are gifts. Where are they stored? I'm going to go find where they're stored. Mm-hmm they would have a handle already on the idea that that there's just all this riches out there to be had. But you have to look at it as a gift. And if you look at it as a gift, you've immediately jumped up one level, which means there's something beyond because these gifts come from somewhere. This is why I think that Newton and, and Kepler and all those guys back in the day who were deep believers in God, that's what centered their whole science yeah. was this belief that there was order in the universe because there is a God who has given mm-hmm. us an ordered universe and that there is knowledge to be found and it's a gift. So then, then this brings me now to, um, to this conversation that these guys were having. 
Um, now, can you see the screen again? I can. Yeah. Okay. So um, this Douglas Brash is really interesting. He asks lots of interesting questions. I'm just going to start here for a few minutes. Okay. okay. Um, and it dawned on me that, well, there's actually two things in that box. There's uh, numerals that are getting rearranged and there's numbers. Okay. Just a second. I got to go back a few seconds more. Ambled up and you're trying to get them back one through 10 by doing swapping. So, um, what? So that's the one where you have this array of numbers, like one through ten. They're scrambled up, and you're trying to get them back one through ten by doing swapping. Okay. Um, and it dawned on me that well, there's actually two things in that box. There's so. You He's talking about some kind of a, a puzzle or a game where you have a bunch of numerals in a box, one through 10, mm -hmm. and you have to try to figure out how to get them in order so that they go from one to 10. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's basically the idea of this. Uh, numerals that are getting rearranged and there's numbers, which are where the information is actually sitting and the constraint is actually mm -hmm. sitting. And, uh, so does that make sense to you? Yeah. There's two aspects of this. There's the numerals, which you could think of as uh, children's plastic toys, numbered one yeah. to 10. But, but the only thing that makes it possible to put them in order is that there's some sort of abstract information yeah. level That's above, right? right? Yeah. yeah. You're basically using the number information and comparing current positions to the number ordering. Numerals don't have an ordering property, you know, they're just scratches on paper. And then as soon as you have that dichotomy, you now basically have the same dichotomy as a genotype, phenotype, blueprint, object that you're making, and so forth and so on. And so among those, and that confers in a number of interesting properties. First of all, you could swap things at the blueprint level and not necessarily get a any change at the phenotype level. Um, or maybe you do, maybe you don't. And that's the sort of option that lets the stress selection and, and genetic simulation work and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, the other the other is that as soon as you have think of it in terms of like these two levels with blueprint and the output, um, the first thing you want is to have parts. And so by analogy with the DNA, which is actually, I think, probably a pretty good analogy in many ways, um, you know, you've got different bases. And then on the other hand, you've got amino acids. And then, um, so what actually happens with that? Well, you've got a very rigid code that goes from the DNA to the amino acids and then to the protein. Um, but which proteins you decide to make and how those proteins assemble or get assembled by another protein, that's the part that is subject to optimization, I would guess. And so if I were going to look for a place to, to apply a free energy principle, that's where I would guess it would look. Now, maybe in evolutionary history, there's a similar principle for just deriving a code, but 
in any event. So then now if you're looking for some kind of electrical code that's the analog to that, then A, you would like some parts. Sorry, if you're liking one an electrical blueprint that is the macroscopic blueprint that's constraining the organism, <clears throat> even if you push its eyes around or something, then A, you would like some parts of some kind, like sub-electric fields, and B, you'd like some code for how that gets translated over into actually building the organism. And then the funny thing about the genetic code, so we know about the reading frame as basically restricting how to go from ATGC to an amino acid. But I remember in grad school, I asked, well, okay, where is that code sitting? And where it's sitting is in the tRNA synthetase. And so then the question is, okay, can you look for analogs of all this stuff with the electric fields? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, um, it's, you're right, you're right in that. <clears throat> it's really critical. Um, for all these bioelectric states to ask who the interpreter is. So the mapping, right, much like with the DNA, the mapping between a distribution of voltage states and then some anatomical, you know, uh, state later on is, uh, is, is really critical. And we, we spent a lot of time and we're still thinking about, originally we thought that it might be specific voltage levels mapped to specific organs. And then, and then we saw that that was. Well, okay, this whole thing is super interesting, but I want to. Uh -huh. Focus in on Douglas Brash's question. Yeah. Where is that interpreter sitting? Okay. And now let's move ahead to uh -huh. um, a little bit later in this same conversation. They come back to this topic. Well, I, I see what you mean. Yeah. Well, well, you know, this this issue of where is it, where is it stored has been driving me nuts for a long time because there are many such there there are many such things uh um when uh you know the the distribution of primes and all the where where does like that stuff doesn't seem to be you know it doesn't seem to depend on the physical facts of the universe like where is all that or even just the you know the thing where you've seen this um uh galton board yeah it's just a it's a it's a piece of wood and it's got a bunch of nails stuck into it and you take a box of marbles and you dump it over and they go boom 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 and in the end you get this bell curve right you yeah, always yeah. Get the, you always get the bell curve. So now you could ask, where is the shape of this bell curve stored? So you start looking at the wood and you look at the nails and then you look at the distribution of the nails. None of those have anything yeah. with, you know, none, none of them encode in the strict set. So where the heck does yeah. it come from, right? There's a million of these things. Yeah. Why are there normal distributions? <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Or, or truth tables, right? So, so you, so you, you evolve. I, I like this too. You you evolve an ion, a voltage gated ion channel, which is basically a voltage gated current conductance. It's basically a transistor. You have a couple of these things. You can make a gate. If you have a logic gate, you have a truth table. Where's this truth table? Like you gain in the fact that you know the NAND is special and all this kind of stuff. Where is all that? It wasn't. It sure wasn't in your in your you know ion channel design. It's it's you get that for free somehow. It's like this this incredible free gift from from I, I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> Now, <laughs> okay, now let's yeah. go on a little yeah. bit further. Okay. And then he brings up this thing about the ship of Theseus, mm -hmm. which 
I just had a vague memory of, but he explains it. So it's pretty clear, I think. Super, super interesting because it, uh, it, it, it ties to, it ties to some stuff that I've been, I've been thinking about with respect to in, in development and metamorphosis and, and, and regeneration and all that, which is this old idea, this, this old ship of Theseus idea. Right. And so, uh, thinking about the fact that the, the important thing about the, the ship of Theseus as they replace the planks and all that, and it stays the same ship is that what allows all this to happen is the policies in the ones doing the replacing. So it's the policies of the people, cells, whoever it's going to be that are replacing the components that makes this thing the same because they're, they need to execute their changes in a way that preserves some kind of invariant for them. So they're going to choose where mm -hmm. to put the boards and everything in a way that preserves what they think of as, as, as the ship. That's the only way this is going to work. So, so again, we're back to this idea of observers and starting off with the notion that if you want the thing to stay the same despite molecules come and go in the body cells come and go if you're a cognitive system ideas come and go and mental states come and go but you're going to stay the same for you to stay the same there has to be a replacement policy of some sort and then and then that gives you the idea that gives you the ability to do what you just said which is better than staying the same is actually a policy for changing you slowly into something else so you know if you're a caterpillar you're you are maintained for a while but eventually there's a new policy that actually maintains you and it turns you into a butterfly and, mm -hmm. you know, are you the same? You've got some of the same memories and you've got some other stuff, but a lot of things have changed. Mm -hmm. But it's all, you know, it, it's all about uh, the policies that are not just keeping you the same, but actually slowly transitioning you to some future, you know, sort of representation of. of well, so it goes on in this vein uh -huh. when they're thinking about this idea of the the observer and the, the observers and the policies. Mm hmm. Even those things you have to ask, where is that stored? Because like we know my human body, the, the cells, every single cell gets replaced at some point. I think they say within seven years, everything has been replaced at least once. I'm still me. Yeah. Right. Uh -huh. um, if you look down all the different levels as each cell is dies and then is replaced there are observers that are adhering to certain policies mm -hmm. <laughs> as to how to reconstruct that cell and how um i think it was glenn my physicist friend who's yeah, yeah. a number of times he says that built into the dna is a i guess you could call it a an error correction mechanism or something that always takes you back to the original. Mm -hmm. So instead of, instead of my cells replacing based on um, changes that might've happened in my life over time, it goes back to the original and creates that cell with the exception of cancer. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, so you have the, the observers and you have the policies and then you have where are these gifts stored? I mean, this is what makes me these guys so interesting is that they're willing to use terminology like yeah. a gift. It's like a yeah, free gift sure. out there. Where is it stored? Mm -hmm. and, and I I think that's like the big question, right? Well, that to me, right off the bat, the gift is is quality. You know, the gift the the thing that keeps, you know, things going or you know, it's it's like in, in person that would be like 
maintaining a high quality static pattern, a human being. And the gift is that this is a static pattern that has been deemed to be very high quality and it wants to be preserved. Now it's going to update over a long period of time through evolution with what's better. So, so the gift is what's when better. You say what's it good, wants to be, when you say it wants to be preserved, you mean the static, the, the static pattern. pattern value. Yeah. yeah. Well, so that's a personal statement right there. Uh, tell me what you mean. It wants to be preserved. Yeah. Yeah. I want I want to be preserved. I yeah. am a static pattern of value mm -hmm. that wants mm -hmm. to be preserved. That's a that's a personal statement. Mm -hmm. You can't make that a force. That's a person. I think that that's that's absolutely right. And I think that in this way of looking at things, um, the desire love is the is is the essence of everything. So in that regard, if you were to make the transition into a person, into a person, into, um, you know, because it, it's said that that Persig's theory is, uh, what's that thing that, panpsychism in some kind of way, that within everything is love. And that's what combines to make patterns and patterns update themselves and sometimes even break apart when it's better to break apart. And renew. So within this is this is why I think that um, even with my own struggles to understand this, that there's something in in Persig's philosophy that allows me to enter into this corner in a way that I think can help me make sense of it. Mm -hmm. It's because the quality itself implies love. It implies better. It implies the ability to be better. You know the 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 betterness the the valuing in itself is the expression let's say plotinus says the overflowing of the one into manifestation is betterness and that's the mm -hmm. movement too so it, it all kind of lines up if you look at it in mm -hmm. that regard yeah and and i think i've heard like i said i'm not a philosopher but i have heard this word um panentheism as maybe a substitute for panpsychism, because mm -hmm. panpsychism typically <clears throat> is used and understood by people to mean that that um, God is everything. Like we can look at the world mm -hmm. and that is God. Yeah. But, yeah. but that's really a diminishment of God. And and that's like when Peugeot says, what do you mean by God's everything? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a, but that's a huge one? diminishment of yeah, God yeah. because everything is still finite. Sure. Right? Yeah. So, um, but panentheism would say more that God is in everything. Mm -hmm. So God is outside the universe, mm -hmm. completely perfect and ineffable mm -hmm. and, and uh, a communion of love. But God has also invaded or pervaded or, or, exists within the universe uh -huh. in everything yeah and then and that that i mean i like your use of the word better yeah. the betterness um mm -hmm. persig uses the word quality you could use mm -hmm. the word i mean jordan peterson <clears throat> talks about how value mm -hmm. has to be at the base of everything because mm -hmm. same thing 
Yeah, I think they're yeah. same, same thing. Right, because if yeah. if there is no if there is no better, then there's no reason to yeah. there's no reason or move no. ahead or anything. That's right. So these three guys that were talking, mm -hmm. they were talking about the free energy principle, which is Carl Friston's idea that, mm -hmm. um, and it's very mathematical. <clears throat> it would just kill you how mathematical it is. I just have to show you because this is such a this is mm -hmm. such a charge. Um, Oh, did I lose it now? I guess I lost it. I had it pulled up and I somehow got got lost. Okay. Well, anyway, this not doesn't really matter. Um so we're back on screen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> um anyway, it's a mathematical thing that says that. everything is always trying to minimize free energy and um, minimize surprise. It's a mathematical logarithmic scale of some kind of minimizing surprise. Mm -hmm. And so that that's the energy that drives life, which sounds very, um, I don't know, sounds very static and clinical. <laughs> That. it's not nearly as beautiful as the idea of love right mm -hmm. but but there is something in there that if that is the energy if that is the principle that's at the bottom of everything who knows but let's say it is mm -hmm. that still is represented by these very very complicated mathematical structures mm -hmm. where do those reside they're all residing somewhere they're all stored somewhere all these mathematical structures that make this principle possible mm -hmm. are all stored somewhere mm -hmm. And, and the fact that that exists is a gift. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any life. Mm -hmm. If what makes life exist is to minimize surprise, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the motivating factor for minimizing mm -hmm. surprise? If the thing that motivates life is to just stay alive, why? Why, do, why did the why, first Why bother cell, if, if there yeah. isn't an equality? Yeah. Yeah. Why did the first cell have any desire yeah. to stay alive? You know, yeah. if there wasn't something better... And betterness is, you know, overcoming things like surprise, things like lack of control, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Except for people who like surprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe people who like surprise are, you know, they, they have so much control. Their environment is in such um, order, let's say, that they're, they're so protected by their environment, by technology, that they can afford to enjoy surprise. And I think that's kind of true, mm -hmm. right? That's really interesting. So yeah. surprise is kind of a first world. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like, like it is, if it's along the play, if it's like a variation of play, maybe not since that's a primal emotion, but if it's on the lines of, you know, like a, a form of play that is some kind of emulation of something dangerous but you don't have to worry about the dangerous thing because it's you know it's it, it becomes a first world um although, although I, I doubt that's the case well i mean there are some people who enjoy um vicariously seeing things like that in movies mm -hmm. and so forth i'm not i'm not big on that i don't 
I don't like movies or TV series that where everything starts to go bad because one surprise after another gets in the way and and you're just constantly being disrupted and it's all going bad. I, I don't, I had, in order to watch anything like that with my husband, I have to have my iPad open on my lap so I can be scrolling through things while it's happening. (laughs) So so that the assault is not so strong on my, on my site. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Yeah. But I think, I think, what what's interesting about those guys talking about about this gift let's say is you were talking before about you know um god revealing himself in ways that maybe you know become more and more complete well i i actually think it maybe even works the other way Mm -hmm. um in scripture, there are many places where it talks about the hiddenness, that, that God is hidden, mm-hmm. and that um, that he sometimes, well, the, the analogies are made, that he sometimes purposely hides himself so that whoever the, the individual is in scripture will more earnestly seek, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's where the growth takes place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then it also says in the new Testament that, that all the mysteries of God are revealed in Christ. But then when you start to look at Christ, that's an infinite, there's an infinite source there because you can't get to the bottom of those stories about Christ. You can't get to the bottom, even of what Christ himself says much less the stories about his life and the interactions that he had with people and um, the meaning of his incarnation and his death and his resurrection. So, so all these mysteries of God that are hidden in Christ, it's like, okay, so you have a, you know, I've talked before about this chiastic structure. It's like Mm -hmm. a funnel. All this stuff is coming down into this one point, but then from that point, it all opens up again into this infinity. So it comes down Mm -hmm. to this point of, all the mysteries are poured into the life of Christ, which is the image of God on earth, and then opens up out into this infinity of mm-hmm. possibility again, and this infinity of, of deeper and deeper understandings and deeper and deeper growing. And and I think the scientific world is like that. Like, yeah, I think so like too. all of these mysteries come into <laughs> Einstein's mind, and he gets this sparkle of wait a minute. Mm-hmm. time you know space is curved and that's why time does this or that and but then when you go through that point out of it comes all this other stuff that dumps out of that idea and so you might think oh i've got the answer but what you have is the answer that leads you to a gajillion more questions that's right right yeah. so that's the gift that just keeps giving mm-hmm. if it weren't so then we would just stop looking and if we had stopped looking 300 years ago, we wouldn't have the combustible engine, which mm-hmm. maybe a lot of people would say, maybe that would be yeah. great. But, <laughs> but um, if we had stopped looking many, many years ago, we wouldn't have iPhones. And again, maybe some people would say that's great. But on the other hand, if you look back 300 years, like 95% of the people on earth were starving. Mm-hmm. And and today it's maybe 5% of the people on mm-hmm. earth. Isn't that amazing? So, yeah. yeah. Right? So- yeah. So these things that have some negative consequences also have a lot of positive consequences. And mm-hmm. so 
the the sum total is a transcendence of limitation. Wow, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is that you just came up with that now, or that's no? That's that's, that's first again. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's sort of a restatement of that. Uh, oh, say so. That's if that's a restatement of it. Then could you explain what Persic means by that? It means that that whatever um, entity, let's just say, tries to overcome the laws that govern it, like um, like the, the laws that, that that restrain it, like oh, like constraint is the mother of of invention. Something like that, sure, yeah. Okay. Like, like you know, overcoming um, famine so that 95% of the world can be fed. I mean, famine is a real constraint if you don't have a handle on how to do agriculture. Which would go back to this idea that the obstacle is the gift. Right, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, there's one last thing I'd like to, to read. Um, it's just a couple paragraphs. Maybe we can, you know, discuss. Okay. Okay. All right. So, so this is now, now how, how God is discussed by Persig comes up in numerous ways, but this is just one way. Um, that one thing he wrote this in a letter to someone quality can be equated with God, but I don't like to do so. God to most people is a set of static intellectual and social patterns. Only true, the prop propositional knowing, right? Yeah, yeah. Only true religious mystics can correctly equate God with dynamic quality, um, um, participatory knowing. In the West, particularly around universities, these people are quite rare. The, the you know because they think propositionally. The others who go around saying God wants this or God will answer your prayers are, according to the metaphysics of quality, engaging in a minor form of evil. Such statements are lower form of evolution, intellectual patterns, attempting to contain a higher one, and the higher one being dynamic quality, which he equates with God. So that's kind of like saying God wants this is kind of saying God is a force. Well, or it could I think you have to differentiate the two threads. One mm -hmm. would be the propositional way of knowing. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other would be the 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 higher way of knowing, mm -hmm. not the propositional way of knowing. On the propositional way of knowing, to say that God wants this is to imply that you know everything about God and then mm -hmm. you're the one who has a handle yeah, yeah. on it. You have some sort of elite knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you're better than other people. Mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, I can see why he could say that there is potential for evil mm -hmm. in that. There's certainly yeah. because that's the same as trying to use God as a force. It's diminishing it. Right. Yeah. But on the other side, if if you're looking at the kind of noose mm -hmm. relational knowing of God, to say that God wants this that is the relationship that each person has with mm -hmm. God to understand what's God's, what is God's demand on me? Mm -hmm. Maybe demand is the wrong word, but um, God has a purpose for my life mm -hmm. and God made me for a purpose and God 
gifted me with a relationship with him for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And and so there, there is a sense in which God wants, um, not that God needs, but God, God has this relationship with me out of love. And then that's a very personal statement to say that God wants thus. And so is the statement of a God, of a, a person wanting. Yeah. And I, and I agree with that because he's saying here only true religious mystics can correctly equate God with dynamic quality, which I don't believe. I think that if you listen to the love and listen, you know, to participate mm -hmm. in quality, that it's available to everyone. Well, I mean, he's coming from an academic environment. Yeah. So to him, well, yeah, he probably I mean, he, hasn't run into yeah. that many really believing Christians who have who who have this kind of relationship. Yeah. So, so he, it's not like he had the opportunity to have these kind of conversations, you know, yeah. well, he, he was a Zen practitioner. So his, his equivalent of being a practicing Christian will, would be someone who's achieved Zen enlightenment. Mm -hmm. It would be the same in his, in his paradigm. It would be, that would be the equivalent. Well, and see the difference there. Here's the big difference is this idea of achieving versus the idea of receiving. I, I think that I think that I, I use the wrong word because I think that true mystics of any faith receive. Well, yes, that that's I mean, I don't know anything about Zen or any of those things, except that many things that I've read about other religions, mm -hmm. there's typically a set of steps that you go through to get to a certain level or to achieve or a certain set of rules or yeah. five principles or or whatever but in the in the christian economy if you could mm -hmm. say it that way or the christian world the idea is that god knows that i am but dust mm -hmm. and therefore he reaches down and lifts me up it's not like there's mm -hmm. a ladder that I can climb based on yeah. some set of rules that I need to follow in order to get to a certain level. But I recognize that I am but dust and that in, in the words of the tax collector who went up to the temple, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said he went away justified, mm -hmm. not, not the, the, uh, the uh, Pharisee who went up to the mm -hmm. temple and said, I follow all the rules. I tithe. I give 10% of everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I know everything about you. I, you know, I'm so thankful that I, that I have a handle on things, God, <laughs> <laughs> but, but Maybe. Jesus said, it's the tax collector who went away just right. fine because yeah, that makes sense. God have mercy on me, a sinner, God, there is a God. I am not him. Mm -hmm. God have mercy. He is a merciful God have mercy on me. He sees that he, he will give mercy to me mm -hmm. and I am a sinner. Mm -hmm. So the whole story is right there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is not a matter of achieving, mm -hmm. but a matter of receiving. Right. And it's sense. not a matter of enlightenment in the sense of, Oh, now I have something that nobody mm -hmm. else has. It's a matter of I have received this gift that I can now tell other people, this gift is available to anybody, mm -hmm. anybody. You don't have to be of a certain academic quality or a certain intellectual pursuit, or you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be 
you know, a competent weightlifter, mm -hmm. any child is what is able to receive this yep. any mentally handicapped person is able to receive this it's completely scalable mm -hmm. where i think some other maybe that's true in other religious pursuits i don't mm -hmm. know but in the things yeah. that i've read it's as though you have to you have to get up different levels right to get there i i, I think that um in, in as much as it's that that case in christianity where you have to you know, go to confession and do all that stuff. I, I, I would equate, equate it the same way. I would say enlightenment itself is a spontaneous gift. Because you're looking at, you know, you're looking at it being, let's, let's say, dynamic quality. That it's there. And maybe some of these things in church or in a Zen monast a Zen practice would be to prime you to receive the gift versus steps that will get you there at least that's the way i see it hmm. yeah so i don't know does does persig talk a lot about zen buddhism in the book he, talk, he talks to some extent about it and before you read that book did you have a background in zen buddhism i i, I was interested in you know I, I was interested in eastern religions well enough to where you could I don't know if you have the time. Could you explain to me something about Zen Buddhism? <laughs> <laughs> um, I probably can't, you know, like in any academic sense. But my feeling is, from what I've read, that, you know, it primes you to be, like, have a beginner's mind, to have a simple, open, completely open, receiving mind to, to that which is available. And enlightenment is is just another way, or, or is another way of saying connection with God. So the the one thing that I've heard about Buddhism that I think differs quite radically from Christianity, and and there's probably Christians who would disagree with me, and mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of Buddhists who disagree with me, is that in Buddhism the the I don't know if it's the highest, but the, but the end point is that when you die, you rejoin the one mm -hmm. like a drop of water joining the river. Mm -hmm. Is is that a picture that you've heard before? Um, yeah, but I don't know well enough about about that to comment on it. Okay. So yeah, I don't know. That's that's just what I've heard. But but in my understanding that as a Christian, when I am um when I die and I go to be with with God and, and all of those who have gone before, mm -hmm. there's still something of me, of mm -hmm. my um all that God has made me to be, all that God has allowed me to learn and internalize and experience and everything that goes with me. Not that I, not that I become some amorphously connected mm -hmm. to everything else. Like we are all one now. Um, but there might be another sense in which, I mean, I guess I could understand that in the sense of a drop of water is made up of particles and when mm -hmm. it goes into the river it would still be mm -hmm. all that same set of particles that it was before but it would yeah. be distributed differently yeah so, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know 
<laughs> well, maybe our next talk we should talk about. Um, maybe we should talk about that. We should talk about attitudes towards. I don't know what you want to call it—the afterlife, after death. Well, or in my mind, one of the questions that's, or at least my experience recently, is that one of the questions that's being tossed around a lot by people in this corner is, "What does it, what does it mean to be an individual, and is it is it indeed a good thing to be an individual? Is, is individualism good? Yeah, or is it not good? Yeah, and." Uh, there are some people who have very strong feelings about that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Now, my personal feeling has always been that God made me to be a unique individual with my DNA footprint, mm -hmm. my DNA mm -hmm. thumbprint, and um, that he also provides the gifts of all these different obstacles in my life that have caused me to grow in a way that's different than anybody else. <clears throat> everybody has their own obstacle gifts mm -hmm. and and that we're all becoming more and more unique as individuals as we go along in life and that there's a reason for that <clears throat> because then we can speak back into the world from all those different unique vantage points mm -hmm. and bring bring a wholeness that wouldn't be possible otherwise yeah. otherwise we would all be seeing from one perspective and you'd only see a part of the whole instead of getting a more holistic vision of of everything yeah i think that makes sense but he also provides the ability to receive him and that's the same for everyone yes yes and see that's isn't that the big mystery that mm -hmm. in the one from the one aspect everyone is identical in potential and from the other aspect everyone is completely idiosyncratic yeah. in potential. Yeah. So then you have this continuum. That's really interesting thought. Yeah. That's a really well, we've got a lot to talk about in yeah. our next monthly conversation. Well, and, and I'm going to put this video of yeah. Douglas Brash and okay. Michael Levin and uh, Chris Fields in there, because I That's think great, yeah. who listens to the whole thing, your mind is just going to be, popping off like popcorn all <laughs> through the whole video it's like there's so much in there when they get mm -hmm. to talking about identity it is so fascinating but it's probably 10 minutes worth of the talk and i didn't want to burden us with that long of a clip but well that's a that certainly piques my interest yeah you have to be a little bit patient with it because they're they're struggling with some of the biggest yeah. questions and even sometimes they get speechless and they just sit there and let the mm -hmm. space sit there <laughs> And it's so fascinating to watch mm -hmm. scientists struggle with these big questions. So, yeah, this has been great, Sevilla. And so for people who are still with us, I want to say um, some big things coming up. Sevilla mm -hmm. and I are both going to be going to um, the conference in mm -hmm. Chino mm -hmm. in uh, May. So we're going to get to meet each other in person, which is going to be great. I can't wait. And uh, also in May, I have... Michael Levin and Matt Siegel of Footnotes to Plato pairing up and they're going to be having a conversation. So oh, that's fantastic. I'm excited about that. And um, next week, I'm going to be having another conversation with Gavin Ashenden. Oh, about, good. Yeah. Yeah. About this. Uh, there's been a big Twitter debate recently about 
some of Jordan Peterson's comments <laughs> <laughs> and Gavin Ashenden wrote an article about the mm -hmm. Twitter debate. So um, I'm going to have him on and we're going to have a conversation. That's and, gonna be good and then I also have um, Ira Katz and Brad on to talk about this idea of um, value and money. Mm. the natural order of money based on the conversation that Jordan Peterson had with Roy Sabak, mm -hmm. which was a fascinating conversation yeah, yeah, on, on value. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to come on and we're going to talk about that because Brad is very um, excellent in this area of quantity and measurement. And Ira is a, is a big fan of um, Austrian economics. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be a really cool conversation. So, and then you and I again next month. So that's right. <laughs> okay. All right, Karen. Thank you so much. Week. Yeah. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.